This is a chapter with much gold in it. We could spend several weeks studying it. It is wonderfully rich. I think as a a young Christian, I would hear older Christians talking uh, and writers in books saying about these wonderful chapters from John 13 uh, through to 16, and then especially John 17. And really, I would read them and think, don't get much out of it. But as we've been moving through it and studying it, I've been struck by the glorious richness of them. And particularly when you remember that this isn't just some teaching that Jesus gave standing in a synagogue of a Sabbath afternoon or morning, but this was what he said as he was preparing to die. And the imminency of his death and the awfulness of his crucifixion lends weight and color uh, and force to these words. And so I want us to look this evening uh, at John chapter 14, verses 15 uh, to 31. They're full of gifts for Christ's disciples. And this morning in Letter Kenny, and next week, God willing, in Milford, uh, we looked at three of those great gifts. Uh, and they, they, they fill up large sections of verses. But in looking at the big sections of verses, we could miss the little verses that have gold in them. And I want us this evening to look at three sets of I and you phrases. Three sets of I and you verses. They're very personal. Jesus is speaking to the disciples about them. Uh, Verse 19. Because, or the last part of verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Verse 20. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And then verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. These three sets of verses flow out of our being joined to Jesus or united to Christ. We are in a living relationship. If we are trusting in Christ, we are in a living relationship with God. Sometimes we, we can trust all sorts of people. We can trust, you know, somebody over there to do something for us. But there's no closeness necessarily. There's no intimate living connection between us and them. A husband can trust his wife to do things for him. A wife can trust her husband. And there's, there is an intimate, close, loving relationship there. But to be united to Christ is even closer than that. 
Marriage is the illustration that the Bible uses over and over again to, to show the, the closeness and the intimacy of our connection to Christ. Uh, but it's even closer than that. And how is it that we're joined to Christ? It's by believing in him. But the Bible more properly speaks of believing into Christ. It's not just that we believe in him. Oh yes, I believe in him. But we throw ourselves entirely on him. We throw ourselves into him, as it were, and we say, I'm fully depending on you for everything. All of me is bound up in all that you've done. Somebody jumping into a swimming pool is completely in the pool. We throw ourselves completely into Christ. And these three verses tell us three things about being in Christ. First of all, verse 19 tells us that we are alive in Christ. That we're alive in Christ. Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus has just told them that he is going. He's not going to leave them as orphans, but before long the world isn't going to see him, but the disciples will see him. And then he says, because I live, you also will live. They're going to see him die. They're going to see him rise. And then they're going to see him disappear from view as he ascends into heaven. They're not going to see him anymore, but he will be alive. They might have been thinking, if he dies, we all die. But notice what Jesus says. He says, because I live. He almost contradicts, well, he does contradict this, if this is what they're thinking. They're maybe thinking, if he dies, we're all dead men. And Jesus says the opposite, because I live, you also will live. There's tremendous certainty to this. They will have life as surely as they're going to see him rise from the dead in three days' time. They will have life themselves. And the source of this life, it comes from being connected and joined to Jesus. There's an illustration that I've often used of being joined to Christ. It comes from one of the old Puritan preachers, Thomas Goodwin, who said, it's as if all mankind hang from the belt string or from the belt of either of one of two giants, Adam or Christ. We're all born and we're like little key rings hanging off the belt of Adam. And when we come to wherever Adam went, whenever he walked to the tree and ate from the tree, we were there. When he fell, we fell. When he was judged, we were judged. And then when we came and put our trust in Christ, we were unclipped from Adam's belt and we were clipped onto Christ's belt. And when he went to the cross and when he died on the cross for our sin, we were joined to him. And I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You were crucified with Christ and you no longer live. And then when he rose from the dead, we triumphed over the grave. And whenever he ascended into heaven, we were seated with him in the heavenly realms, Paul says in Ephesians. That's one picture. But there's another picture. And it's not one of the old Puritan preachers. It's the old apostle himself. 
in 1 Corinthians, and he says, we're all part of Christ's body. He's the head, and we're the limbs, we're the eyes, we're the nose, we're the the feet, we're the hands, we're the legs, we're the toes, we're we're part of his body. We're, We're joined to him in that way. It's not just that we're clipped on on the outside, but we're part of him, like fibers in the muscles in your leg or parts of the veins and the vessels and the capillaries that that move the blood around the body. We're part of him in that sense. His life flows through us. And those two images are really helpful, and they help us understand what being alive in Christ means. There's two ways we're alive in Christ, at least two, that I want to flag up uh, this evening. First of all, we have spiritual life. We have spiritual life. This is the imagery that Paul has um, from the body. Christ is the head, and we are the, the members of the body. It used to be that we had no spiritual life. We were, as it were, members, parts of a body, fingers, toes, on a corpse, rotting and decaying, dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live. We followed the ways of the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We were children of wrath. But what happened? God made us alive with Christ. We were made alive with Christ, and life started to course through our veins. And we started to want to obey, and we started to want to trust, and we started to want to love Christ. In John 15, Jesus is going to use another illustration. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And the branches bear fruit because they're connected to the vine. The the sap from the vine, the energy that it draws from the, the soil and the sun and the rain and all the nutrients that are in the soil, drawn up the vine, the trunk, and out across through to the branches. There's life coursing through it. And fruit grows. And you and I have gone from being, so we are part of a corpse, to being alive, part of Christ, part of the body of Christ, a new life force running through us. J.C. Ryle says this, Weak as they are in themselves, they are closely knit to an immortal head, and not one member of his body shall perish. That's lovely. We're weak, but we are joined to an immortal head, and life runs through our lives, and that encourages us because at times we feel too weak that we can't live this Christian life. But there's life in us, the life that comes from Jesus Christ is in us and enabling us and quickening us, and keeping us going. You know, you see, that's where the, the Thomas Goodwin's illustration doesn't quite capture the life-giving force. We'll see its usefulness in a minute. But if we only focused on that illustration, we'd, we'd lose the, the liveliness and the life-giving connection of being joined to Christ. I think of myself 
less of being clipped like a, a key ring on Christ's belt. And now I think myself more of maybe a, a fiber in his leg and his thigh or something that's, that's connected into the muscle system, that's vital connection to the nervous system and to the blood system. And it's, it's part and it's alive and it's not going to decay. It's going to grow stronger because it's part of the whole body. What encouragement for us. We might think we're weak and useless Christians, but we are part of being joined to Christ and His life flows in us. And the second illustration, that of Thomas Goodwin, helps us understand not just the spiritual life, but the second thing, that we're alive. The second way we're alive, we've got resurrection life. Resurrection life. The disciples would see Christ die And then they would see him rise again. And that same hope is ours. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. It's not just life now, but it's life to come. Christ's resurrection victory wasn't just his, but it's ours. When he strode from the tomb, we strode with him, as it were, no longer attached to Adam's belt but unclipped and hooked onto Christ's belt, we strode victorious from the tomb. All the brokenness of this world does not have the last word. All the pain of this world does not have the final say, because you are joined to Christ. And because I live, Christ says, you also will live. What an encouragement to hang in there, to keep going, not to give in. Already, if you could see yourselves now, you're seated with Christ, Paul tells us, in the heavenly realms. Seated with Him. You're alive with Christ. Because He lives, you also will live. How do we know He lives? Well, the disciples saw Him rise from the grave And they were so utterly convinced of his resurrection that they would go and they would lay down their lives in far-flung corners of the empire because they knew that death hadn't the final word, but that Christ had. And because he lives, they too would live. And even though they would die, yet they would live, as Jesus had said to Martha and to Mary. And they had seen him prove it, not just in himself, as if he was a special case, but with Lazarus, with Jairus' daughter, with the widow who lived in Nain with her son, they had seen him conquer death. And when Jesus spoke to them, he say here and says, because I live, you also will live. What a promise. We have life. We are alive in Christ. So that's the first I and you sentence here. The second I and you sentence is in the next verse, verse 20. And if we summed up the first one by saying alive in Christ, we sum up this one by saying we're anchored and enabled by Christ. Anchored and enabled by Christ. We'll come across those two thoughts next week. We saw them uh, this morning in Letter Kenny. In verse 20, Jesus says, You are in me, and I 
am in you. You are in me and I am in you. Now, I remember reading these sorts of verses before and thinking, oh, are they just a nice way of putting things, a sort of a mirrored way of saying things? You know, where you say the thing with the words in one order and then you say it again with the words in the other order just to make a point. But this isn't simply a cute little saying or a piece of nice rhetoric or speech making. This is Christianity in its, in its core form. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Remember that. Take it away and think about it. I am in Christ. And Christ is in me. Uh, One writer in a book that I've been reading describes these two truths as one being an anchor and one being the engine. Let's take those two and think about them for a moment. The anchor. I am in Christ. Jesus says to his disciples, you are in me. You are in Christ. I am in Christ. That's your anchor. Salvation is complete. Uh, Over and over again in the New Testament with this little phrase, in Christ or in him. Uh, Let me give you some examples that help us see the anchor that this is to our souls. 1 Corinthians 1, 5, For in him you have been enriched in every way. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him we were also chosen. In him you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In him, Paul says in Philippians 3.9, that he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. In him, we've got this righteousness that's by faith. In Colossians, he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. 1 Thessalonians 4, he speaks about those who have fallen asleep in him. 2 Thessalonians 1.12, we pray this so the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. So much happens to us and for us in Christ. It's all happened and we're connected to him. We are in him where everything that's needed for our salvation has been been occurring and been happening and is finished. What security we have. I am in Christ and nothing can sweep me away. You are in Christ. Nothing can move you, rip you free from the the glue of his love for you. Neither famine or nakedness nor danger nor persecution or sword, nothing in heaven and on earth, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus.
our Lord. You are in Christ. That gives us great assurance. You're in Him. You're in Him. Discouragement, temptation, doubt, struggling, depression, worry, fear, weariness, none of those can rip you out of Christ. You're in Him. You believed into Him, and you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Not only an anchor, but this being in Him enables us. It's the engine. It's the engine that drives us, because Jesus says, I am in you. And that gives us power. If you are in Christ gives us assurance, Christ being in you gives us power. Power to love Him. Power to live for Him. Power to obey Him. Power to believe whenever doubts come. He helps us. Rankin Wilborn in his book gives an illustration from a film. I think the film's called Rudy. And it's where this little skinny kid who wants to play American football and he goes out onto the football pitch and he runs himself ragged. He gets pounded uh, to a pulp. He's battered. He's weary. He's broken. He gives everything. But he's, he's just too small to make the team. And the coach says this, I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. Incredibly, that's what is done to us. Christ is in you. Now, does that not change how we look at the problems we face tomorrow? The things that are discouraging us today, the things that are causing us worry. Christ is in us. There's the engine that drives us, that helps us to keep going. It helps us to grow in holiness. In 1 John 3, verse 3, we're told everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We've got this hope. We've got this. We're alive. We're in him. And because all of that's true, then we start to purify ourselves. Why? Because he's in us. Jesus tells us that if we love him, we will obey his commands. Why is that? Because he's in us, enabling us to obey. This means that living the Christian life, although it's hard, it's not impossible. Walking in a godly way in a broken world, in a godless world, is possible. There's a lovely balance between the two, the engine and the anchor. Jesus says to us here, You are in me, and I am in you. There's a lovely balance. He's our anchor. So that means we don't need to despair when we fall or when we fail. It's like when somebody's climbing and they're anchored by a rope to the rock face. It's not fatal if they should fall. They're anchored and they're secure and they can try again and try again and try again. Oh, but they would run out of energy. Ah, but here's where that illustration breaks down because we have not simply an anchor, but we have an engine. We have Christ in us. So the anchor keeps us from despair and the engine keeps us, I suppose, from feeling 
despair that I can't do this, but the engine also keeps us from getting comfortable and thinking, oh, I'm secure. I can just sit back and take it easy. No, Christ is in us. He wants more for us. He wants more of godliness and growth and grace and us to experience the people that we are meant to be. And that moves us on. So, think on these phrases. I am in you, and you are in me. Perhaps there's one of those halves that you need to particularly think on. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. I, me with all my weaknesses and faults and feelings, I'm in Christ. I am in Christ. You need to think over that phrase. Or maybe you need to remember that Christ is in me. Christ is in me. Wow, what a privilege. I go out to work. I go amongst those friends. I go talking to those people. I answer the phone. I engage with people. And Christ is in me. He's going to enable me. He's going to help me. Christ is in me. I don't need to feel alone going out into the the world, wherever it is I'm going. And look at the first part of the verse. Verse 20. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I am in my Father, he says, and you are in me. The parallel between his interwovenness, as it were, his interconnectedness with his Father, the closeness of that relationship between Father and Son, Christ says, you and I are that close. We're as close to him as he is to his Father. Wonderful. Astonishing. What a rich and privileged position we're in. We're in Christ. Like he is in his Father. And then thirdly, we've had alive, alive in Christ. We have it anchored and enabled by Christ. And then thirdly, peace from Christ. Peace from Christ. This is the third of the IU statements in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It's an echo, a repeat of the opening words of chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me in my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so. Uh, or I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. My peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I leave with you. Uh, I've been reading a book about the beginning of World War II and uh, Neville Chamberlain going to Munich. And he came back from Munich in 1938, having uh, reached an agreement with Hitler that he thought would put off war. And he got off the plane at the aerodrome outside London on the 30th of September. And he spoke to the crowds and said, The settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement 
in which all Europe may find peace. This morning I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and here is the paper, and he waved it famously in the air, here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Later on that day, he stood in the steps of 10 Downing Street, and he said, uh, My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. Alas, it was not to be. Peace, he said, for our time. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. Well, what about Christ's words? Are they wasted and futile words? What sort of peace is he speaking about? Is it peace with God? I don't think that's in view here, because he's speaking about a peace that he has currently and is enjoying now. Is it peace with men? No, because now he doesn't have peace with men. People are against him, and he's told the disciples that men will persecute them and speak all kinds of falsehood against them. But what peace does Jesus have now? What peace is he promising his disciples? It's peace in all sorts of troubled circumstances. And again, two things I want to point out here about this peace. It's personal proven peace. It's personal, proven peace. My peace. My peace, he says. It's upper room peace. It's the peace that Jesus has at this moment. It's the peace that Jesus has had throughout his life. It's the peace that Jesus has been clinging on to even when his heart was troubled by circumstances. And he says, I believe to himself, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. I think that's something he's been preaching to himself. And he's been looking to the joy that's set before him and scorning the cross and its shame. And he's finding peace. And he's saying to his disciples, the peace that I've got. And whenever you read these chapters, they breathe of peace. It's easy to read chapters 13, even through to 17, and forget that he is going to face the wrath of his Father because they seem so restful and peaceful. He's at peace. It's a peace that has been proven in the fires of temptation. Peace that has been tested amongst the misunderstanding of family and disciples. Peace that has withstood the hatred and hostility of people and religious leaders. Peace that has withstood the plotting and uncertainty of the last few weeks. Peace that he has had during storms when he's been sleeping on a boat while the disciples have been panicking. Peace that has stood in the face of demonic attack and seeing demon possession. This is peace that Jesus has. He says, my peace I give to you because you're joined to me. You're my people. And you can have my peace. 
a poise and a resolve amidst conflict, a composure and a confidence that enables us to be faithful where God has placed us. There may not be peace around us, but there can be peace within us. Not because we're really strong people, but because Jesus is with us. Will we remember that I am in Christ and Christ is in me? And if I can hang on to those two truths, I will have a peace that's beyond understanding. Peace that Jesus had came from knowing his Father was in control and he's going to the cross so that his Father can be our Father. You know, I think it's 23 times in chapter 14 he speaks and calls God Father. It's the most number of times that God is addressed as Father anywhere in the Bible, in any chapter. 23 times he's been thinking about his Father. That's why he's trusting him. That's why he's at peace. Because even though judgment must come, the judge is his Father. He knows he can trust him. And that's why he says on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he went to the cross so that that Father who can be so trusted could be your Father because you're joined to Christ. And when he says, Father, I trust you with everything, you can know that you can trust him with everything. And so it's a personal peace. And it's also an actual peace. He says, I do not give as the world gives. Well, how did the world give? Well, there was the Roman peace that was famous at that time. And they had their peace established over the empire by military might, by force, by crushing all opposition. Is that the peace that Jesus brings? No. We will have opposition. We will have all sorts of turmoil. Well, is it Jewish peace? The Jewish greeting was shalom, which means peace. You wished somebody peace. You wished them peace. That's not it either, because that's only a wish and a prayer. This is actual peace. A peace that will rule in our hearts and minds. A peace that is beyond understanding, because we are anchored in Christ, and we are enabled by Christ. We are alive in Christ, and therefore we have peace from Christ. What three phrases we've had. They're so simple, but they're so rich. I don't know which of them you may need this evening, but let's take them away and chew them over, alive with Christ. Do I need to be reminded that I am alive in Christ and that he's living in me to enable me to do what he calls me to do? Do I need to be reminded that I'm alive with Christ and the resurrection is my hope as well as it was his certainty? Do I need to be reminded that I am in Christ? There's my anchor. Secure. Do I need to be reminded that Christ is in me? That I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me? Do I need to be reminded that I have this peace from him? It's beyond understanding that will guard our hearts and minds. Where? In Christ Jesus. Here's hope for Monday, or maybe even it's hope for tonight, that we are in Christ 
and that nothing can rip us free from him. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, how we thank you for this wonderful truth in simple one-syllable words that we live because he lives or that he is in us and we are in him or that his peace he has given to us. O Lord God, thank you for the wonderful richness of these promises. Help us to live in that awareness of the privilege that is, that is ours, that we are alive in Christ, and that Christ is in us, and that we have peace for living in this hostile and godless world. So help us to live with composure and poise, with confidence and hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.